being the person who found Uber or Calm and was just involved in those companies from the beginning, that would be a pretty good way of determining that I was amongst the greatest investors of all time. And so I just figured, what's a good, crazy goal? 400 investments in four years. So Jason Calacanis is like Marmite. I mean, out of context, you'll be like, fuck you. No, no, I like it. I think I'm polarizing. I'm opinionated. Sure. I'll take it. I'm like Marmite. Some okay. people might say fungus. I grow on you. Sure. But I'll take Marmite. Sounds like better than that. People either love the highly successful angel investor or, well, let's just say they're fascinated by the candor and approach of the once Silicon Valley reporter. Is that a nicer way of saying it? I love it. The sure. Silicon Valley reporter. There you go. Boom. One thing is for sure, he's recognized as being a standout character in his field. After working out of the rough neighborhoods of Brooklyn to the wealth and luxury of San Francisco, Jason has tasted success with a few hiccups on the way, which hopefully he'll chat about today. Sure. Once described as the web version of Donald Trump, <laughs> so perhaps a political career ahead of him too. He's the investor you want on your side. Less floppy hair and not really the tan just yet, which actually shows you are working at the very Tre- least. Tremendous, tremendous angel tremendous. investor. Can you do the hand huge. gesture for us? We've got the video going. The hand I'm not going to do the white power, but I will do <laughs> tremendous, huge. So after success with unicorn companies such as Uber, Thumbtack, Robinhood, and Desktop Metal, mm. selling shares in Facebook whilst telling Mark Zuckerberg what he thought of him and where to go, and working alongside investors such as Elon Musk, Jason is the dinner party guest we all want to have at our table, and probably an entertaining one to get drunk, but it's the middle of the day, yeah. so we're not going to find out. Anyway... He's been kind enough to lend me his own studio to flip the switch as he usually does the interviewing on everyone else. Every week on his flagship show and podcast, This Week in Startups, which I've been following for some time. And a mutual friend of ours, David Matthews, not the singer or the band, Better Hair, has introduced us. So thank you Mm. to David. There's a shout out. Um, And speaking of good hair and another connection whilst I'm in town, as I mentioned, I'm staying at another one of your investees apartments. My wonderful friend, Michael, the co-founder of Calm. Michael Acton-Smith. Exactly. Another one of your soon-to-be successes, or should we call a Sunicorn? A Sunicorn I like. It's likely our seventh unicorn in our first 125 investments. It was the first company, com.com, to go through our syndicate. So we have a syndicate, which is essentially a group of 2,600 accredited angel investors who have congregated at jasonsyndicate.com. Is we started on AngelList or not? We started on AngelList, but we were a little too big for AngelList and, you know, unruly, I guess. Um, so we moved off of it because we just didn't want to have to pay the VIG. They take 25% of people's returns. And even if we had a better deal, it, it would be better for me to build my own organization and take that amount and instead of paying Naval and his team 25% of my returns. It'd be better for me to pay my team, which is what I've done. So we had a great start with Naval, uh, and he taught me how syndicates work. And in fact, Calm was the first one. We put $378,000 into Calm when it was a $5 million company, roughly 7 or 8%. And they closed, uh, this is public knowledge, they closed at a $250 million valuation earlier this year. Most people would pin them at probably double that now. So that 7 or 8% is worth 30 or $40 million, I think, objectively. Half that if the market wasn't this hot. Maybe it's worth 10 to $40 million. But objectively, yeah, it's a $15, 25000000 million position. And most importantly, a meaningful mission. Yes. I mean, in the sense of, you know, the... Uh, spreading the, calm in the world. Yeah, reducing the, anxiety and PTSD yeah. and people are grinding their teeth on social media. It's like the one thing you can do on your phone... That is actually good for you. It must be nice to find something like that around the valley. Yeah. I'm very proud of the com.com investment because 
nobody else would invest in that company at the time. People, somebody wrote on Quora, will Jason Calacanis lose $400,000 investing in Com? Like I was literally getting trolled about the investment because people didn't understand what mindfulness was. So when people don't understand something, they sometimes deride it. And they also underestimated the founder. And there are two things I, I think are critical if you're going to be successful as an angel investor. One is to never underestimate anybody. I never underestimate anybody because I felt like I was underestimated for a large portion of my life. Maybe even our, I'm still in, underestimated uh, even after all the wins. And the number two thing is what you think about the product and where the world's going does not matter. Because it's not your decision. Like, there's a group of people who don't believe in electric cars. There's a group of people who didn't think meditation was. And there were people previously who didn't think Starbucks and $5 coffee, or they didn't think that the internet would be a big thing. Hey, and when the Flatlanders are all right, and yeah. they proved to us that the world wasn't round after all, we'll sure. feel pretty goddamn stupid. We will feel stupid. <laughs> so we've gone straight into it, but I'm going to bring you back for a second, just for a quick fire round. We usually like to break the ice with our guests, but sure. hey, you're just the type that the ice was already broken. Yeah. So you're a regular on this kind of thing. So very, very quickly, San Francisco or Brooklyn? Brooklyn. Oh, Jesus. It's a better city, objectively. Yeah, fair. I mean, somebody could fix San Francisco. It'd be a lot of work, though. Yeah, very fair. It's your job, so <laughs> get on with that. Uh, you know, when this is done, that's what you can get on with doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Electric head or petrol head? Electric. Reporter or investor? God, I miss being a reporter, but being an investor is just a lot easier and pays better, so I'll take <laughs> investor. Blog or vlog? I'm a blog guy. I like to write. Okay. Uh, favorite book you've read this year? I feel like I know the answer, actually. That's a great question. I might say Shoe Dog. Oh, yeah. It's super great, enjoyable. Yeah. I love how I'm much of an asshole he generally is as well. He's so mean to everyone. He doesn't give anyone any shares or do anything nice. It's crazy. Yeah. I, people are complex. Yeah. yeah especially successful people. Like, mm. And then the secret to success is being able to get along with and appreciate difficult people. Because anybody who's successful or interesting in the world could be difficult at times in my experience like people who change the world are not always likable or easygoing in fact they can be difficult and argumentative and challenging and that's why i chose to pick being an angel investor as this phase of my career because i like dealing with those people mm. i like meeting with alex from com and him telling me i'm wrong and here's why he's right. And he mm. did tell me that a number of times, and yeah. he was right. And sometimes I might have been right, but it's one of the great things about this profession that I stumbled into is you get to hang out with the smartest people in the world. They tell you how the world's going to change. They tell you how they're going to do it. And then they say, you want to come with me for the ride? And I'm yeah. like, sure, I'd like to go to that party. Let's do it. My favorite book of the year so far is staring me in my face right now. Really? Bad what is blood. it? Bad Blood. Oh, you know what? I take it back. I would say Bad yeah, Blood that's is That's what you were going to say. Yeah, you know what? I, I listen and read to so many books that in order for me, with my short-term memory or my long-term memory issues, I just have to like look at my Audible list and, and remember what I read that year. But I would say Bad Blood is better than Shoe Dog, for yeah, sure. Yeah, it is. I would say Bad Blood is a 10 out of 10, a must-read and Shoe Dog is a 9 out of 10. Agreed. You absolutely need to read it. My <laughs> other 9 out of 10 for you, Stealing what? Fire. Yeah, it's pretty good. 
quite yeah. I just really enjoy the yeah. maybe maybe it's because you know not from Silicon Valley so although there's yeah. so much of it's going on in London and England which is yeah. super interesting the uh, uh, homo deus deus yeah. and, uh, and sapiens sapiens it's a nice combo I like to enjoy both of those agreed super challenging for people anyway we've digressed uh, di- already yeah, we're already in books classic okay look yeah. so favorite guest you've had on twist god there's been so many but I do think I really enjoyed meeting and spending time with Ed Catmull from Pixar who wrote the book Creativity yes. Because yeah. I felt like Creativity Inc. really, when you hear that story of a group of people, including himself, who were trying to figure out if computer animation from its really early days in the late 60s, early 70s, they knew they wanted to make a feature length film. It'd be like, they'd be somebody like with a drone five years ago when you first started seeing drones yeah. emerge saying, I want to create a fleet of drones that fly people around cities. Right. And like now fast forward 40 years and Toy Story comes out. It's kind of like that. It's this really huge arc. Yeah. And he was a great guest. It was multiple hours. Most people would say Chris Saka, Travis Kalanick. There's been a bunch of people in the podcast who are really good. You know, podcasting is a very interesting medium because you don't answer to anybody. And I was on the phone with one of the major tech companies the other day and they were talking about, they asked me my advice on podcasting. I was like, listen, you're not going to create the HBO podcasting or the Netflix. The top 20 podcasters specifically do it because they don't want to have a boss. They yeah, specifically do it because yeah. they don't want to be part of something. Joe Rogan, Sam Harris, Ben Shapiro, Leah Laporte, Mark Marin, like none of these people want to be part of something bigger they just want to do their thing and not answer to anybody and i get all these offers to be part of podcasting networks and all this stuff and i'm just like we make a million dollars a year we have four people working on the program One hundred fifty thousand people watch every episode we don't need you we don't ever want to have a conversation with you about what we should do on the podcast i'll decide what we do on the podcast you know like we don't want a partner no thank you like it's nice to be independent Yeah, I mean, it's the whole point of it is independence and not – if you look at why podcasting is succeeding now, it's because you can hear things on podcasting that are not allowed on the regular radio or on mainstream media. Well, moving into this area, a fiercely independent man, as is Jason Calacanis, our guest today. So let's take it back to the beginning. And hey, if we do a good enough job of profiling the ins and outs of your psyche, who knows, you might want to even feature this whole episode on Twist yourself yeah. by choice. You might you be like, Absolutely. Jesus, this guy got deep. We got right. deep. I'm going to start crying. Um, <laughs> yeah, please. I, we'll get you some tissues afterwards. But yeah. look, onto the businesses. Most people know you as a famous angel investor, of course. They might know you as a journalist, but what they probably don't realize is you're actually an entrepreneur yeah. originally. Yeah. Um, so Rising Tide Studios, why don't we yeah. start at the beginning? Tell us about that. Yeah, so when I was uh, in my early 20s in New York, I really wanted to be somebody. I had like a view of the world as a kid from Brooklyn whose father was a bartender, owned a bar, and a mom who was a nurse, that I was just in awe of people in Manhattan and people who had power and who were on the cover of magazines specifically. And I used to read Spy Magazine and Paper Magazine and Esquire and Time Out and all these independent magazines at the time. And I would just wonder, who, how do you get on the cover of Rolling Stone? Who picks that person? And, oh, Jan Wenner picks that. And how do you get onto the cover of Paper? Oh, David Hershowitz picks that. So I just had this realization at some point, the person who is on the cover of the magazine is famous. The person who picks the person who goes on the cover of the magazine has the real power. And that was just a very weird 
random observation, but for a young person who wanted power and money, which I did, it was profound because I just said, I'll just start a magazine. And then I was like, I'll start a magazine about CD-ROMs and dial-up services. And my first magazine was called Cyber Surfer. It lasted five episode issues. And then I did Silicon Alley Reporter. And Silicon Alley Reporter lasted for a couple of hundred and got to $12 million a year in revenue. And Rising Tide Studio was the parent company that I started doing events, was on Charlie Rose, got profiled in The New Yorker, and at the age of 28, 29, had 75, 100 people working for me and was the man about town in New York in the booming 90s, which was an incredible period of time. And so I had a great run, and then it all fell apart at the dot-com bust, and then I had to rebuild. But it was... How did you rebuild? Did you shut the company down, or...? Yeah, I basically sold Silicon Alley Reporter. We changed the name to Venture Reporter. We started covering venture capital as a category, as a database. We sold it to Dow Jones. I got two-year salary. After they bought the company, they fired me like two weeks after buying the company. They were like, yeah, we think you have such a bright future ahead of you, and you really, your time would be wasted here. And I was well, like, they were right. I was like, are you firing me? And they're like, well, we just think you should continue on. I was like, I have a contract. They're like, and we're going to pay you the entire contract. I was like... You're going to pay me the entire contract over the next few years? They're like, no, we're just going to give it to you in a lump sum. I was like, you're going to give me $400,000 right now? Okay. Uh, so I got a little bit of money, and then uh, I started Weblogs, Inc. with my partner, Brian Alvey, because I wanted to get back in the game immediately. And we sold that for $30 million in Gadget, Autoblog, Joystick, all those famous blogs, 18 months after we created it with 100 k in revenue. So that was sort of like my revenge startup. I was like, everybody else is in... Thailand recovering from the dot-com boom. I'm just going to come out and take over blogging and just win. And I was just desperate for a win at that point because I had been offered 20 million bucks for Silicon Alley Reporter. I didn't take it. Pretty famously by Alan Meckler, who was more than happy to put it in my face <laughs> many times. Like, oh, I was going to I offered you 20 million. You didn't take it. And I owned 85% of that company. So that would have been a huge payday for a 29-year-old. And I didn't take it. And that sort of set me back a couple of years, mm -hmm. but not that much. So that was a good lesson too. I think if you're able to build a $10 million company, you're going to be able to build a 20 or 30. Just keep at it. Yep. There is luck in life, but after a while, you got to think maybe there's a pattern. And so I, I, I always joke with people. I'm like, I'm just a guy who got lucky nine times. You know, and they're like, but you can't get lucky nine times. And I go, exactly. But I'll just keep saying that. Yeah. <laughs> so you make your own luck. Yeah, I mean, hard work is definitely part of it. And taking risk is part of it. Being born in the developed world is part of it. Yeah. And um, your ability to network and find those opportunities. But it really is more about taking risk. Most people just never take a risk. Like they don't start a podcast or they don't start a blog company. And if you never start, then there's no chance of winning. And so I just love to gamble. I like placing bets. I'm, I did 55 investments this year. Next year, I'm going to do 100. Mm. And I'm trying to build an infrastructure to do 100 great investments a year. It's not easy to do. But in fact, there's only one other person who does that number of investments. And that's why Combinator. We're not trying to compete with them. I mean, we have a better program than them, obviously. But it's just a higher quality program. I'm just basing it on the quality, yeah. not the number. I think they have quantity, but we have a better quality program. I'm being slightly facetious. I mean, I know. and that scale and launch, like essentially, that's that product. Yeah, launch incubator, which yeah. we're gonna. I think we're gonna rebrand it. Launch accelerator. It's a much better program than Y Combinator. It's only seven companies, and you get to pitch every week, and your peers all have launched products in the market with some kind of traction. And if you go to Y Combinator now, it's just you're lost amongst 150 companies. It's kind of a factory. So it'd be like imagine if Harvard or somewhere special was like, oh, Harvard, everybody wants to go here. Great. 
let's go from a thousand students to a hundred thousand students. Like, yep. would it be the same thing? No. Yeah. Would it have a decent reputation for some period of time? Sure. I think Y Combinator will have a great reputation for some period of time. The smart people over there, but. I don't think it's a good experience for the founders like it used to be. I've met many people from there, and they're like, I'm like, oh, you went to Y Combinator. Oh, great. How was it? What, what did Sam Altman, a friend of mine, or what did Sam Altman think of your company? And they're like, I haven't met Sam Altman. Or I saw him like one time, you know, and but he didn't say hello. And mm. like, how is Sam Altman going to meet all 300 companies? Like, it's a little bit crazy, right? Like 50 companies, yes, you can meet everybody. Yeah. Maybe 100, you can meet everybody. But when you start getting to 300 people a year... That means you'd have to meet with a company a day, every day. And, totally. And that would be just to meet them once. Mm. In the same vein. So I was at Boost VC because, which is Tim Draper, or Adam Draper's yeah. one. Yeah. What was really nice, and I noticed, and I thought it was very cool, you know, Tim's office is upstairs, but he's down there talking to everyone, and, you know, do you talk to Tim and stuff? Like, oh, yeah, all the time. Yeah. Like, as in... He's accessible. Yeah, and that's yeah. Like, and what you've just described. And I think that's that's awesome. Well, that's, that's how Paul Graham started. Like, Listen, I'm yeah. not an expert. I didn't go to Y Combinator. And they don't invite well, me to Well, Paul Graham's not there anymore, so... Yeah, I think yeah. he checked in rich. I think Paul's original idea is the winning idea, which was he did six companies and, you know, he made them dinner every week. So there's something very special about, I think, his innovation of like yeah, a small intimacy. number of companies, the intimacy of it. Mm -hmm. So we modeled it basically after what I'll call Y Combinator Classic. You know, it's just like keep it small and keep it high quality. Every We did four cohorts of seven or eight this year. Next year we'll do seven cohorts of seven, which means every – Six to eight weeks, we'll launch a new cohort, and they'll overlap a bit. But we won't go to 250, 300 like they have. I don't mm. think that's a good idea. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secret leaders. That's vanta.com slash secret leaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. 
Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So fast forwarding to today when we were just talking about launch, mm. uh, you've got the launch conference next week. Yeah, launch scale is next week. Yeah. Uh, you can see that at launchscale.net. That's a conference I created just for my founders to go learn how to grow their companies. I think this is the sixth one we've done. And when we do our events, we give away 95% of the tickets, so there'll be 1,500 founders there for free. We make sure we check their LinkedIn and Twitter, that they're actually a founder. We find their company, et cetera. If they're a sales executive or a headhunter or somebody from Oracle or you know, a law firm who are trying to sneak in and get a free ticket, we just direct them to the paid tickets. Um, and so with these events, we basically break even. Sometimes they lose a little bit of money. Sometimes they make it. Okay, so what what actually drew you to becoming an angel investor? Let's get into it. I mean, is it to help people? Is it the money? Is it being able to walk into a Starbucks anywhere and say this is for J-Dog and and get away with it? What? Because this is the gangster rap Um, lifestyle. You know what? I was asked to do it by my friend Rulof Botha at Sequoia because he came up with this concept of scouts. And he said, would you be the first scout? And I said, sure. And uh, I had done a little bit, like maybe two or three 5K or 10K angel investments before that. But I thought angel investing was stupid because I was like, you should just focus on your own company. And then what I realized is like, oh my God, like as a founder, you could spend 10 years on a company like I did on Silicon Valley Reporter and get nothing. You could spend 18 months on Weblogs Inc. and sell it for 30 million. Or you could do Mahalo, it doesn't work out. You do Pivot to Inside and now it's doing a million a year. Maybe it will work out in year 11, who knows? It's really hard. You know, if I look at my entrepreneurial career, there's one huge win and one push basically and We'll see what happens with Inside slash Mahalo. I think it'll be a success, but remains to be seen. I think we're getting close. But being an angel investor is super easy. And in my younger years, I was obsessed with power and how it was accumulated and wealth because I didn't have either of those things. I grew up without power. I grew up without wealth. Grew up worrying about money. And now that I have money and power, I don't think about that all that much. But I do like to set what I would call stretch goals for myself or just interesting goals to just intellectually challenge myself. So I knew I was on track to do like 50 investments this year. And I was like, okay, fuck it. I want to do a hundred next year. Then I went to my team. I just had this flash in my mind, uh, 100. And then I told them, okay, I'm setting up a structure where everybody will get compensated over four years. We're going to do a hundred investments a year for four years. Here's how much of the carry I'm going to share with the team. And if it works out and we hit a unicorn a year, you're all going to make a lot of money and I'm going to make much more. And We'll have 400 more investments to add to the 175, and that'll put me at 575 investments. As an angel, it's never been done. I mean, incubators have done it, but no angel's ever done it. And uh, I'll have 10 to 20 unicorns, and that'll make me the goat of all goats, greatest of all time for angel investors. And then I just realized, well, why am I even making the caveat that I'm the greatest angel of all time, which most people would say objectively I'm probably in the top five. I may not be number one or two this got to be people who've made more money than I have already. But maybe I'll wind up being number one. We'll see what happens with the different investments we already have. But I just set the goal recently, if if I'm going to do this, I want to be the greatest investor of all time, period. So Warren Buffett, I guess, is considered the greatest of all time, or there's hedge fund managers who manage lots of money. So I don't know on a dollar for dollar basis if I can beat those people. But I think being the person who found Uber or Calm or whatever, Unicorns Robinhood, and was just involved in those companies from the beginning, that would be a pretty good way of determining that I was amongst the greatest investors of all time. And so I just figured, what's a good, crazy goal? 400 investments in four years. And now I'm building the infrastructure to do that. 
I'll be done. I'll be 51 or 52 when that goal is hit. And then I'll just figure out the next goal, you know? So, you know, a couple of things struck me here. Number one is um, interesting that you would choose uh, the quantity over quality because a lot of people, and that probably explains, you know, a lot about who you are and the way that you think because a lot of people that want to be the greatest investor of all time might spend a bit more time concertedly picking the few winners as opposed to spreading the 400 yeah the problem is you don't know yeah and with angel investing i know that i've read your book so i know that's not the rule well Um, and the way i look at it is we'll do 50 primary investments in the incubator companies and then of the 50 syndicate investments probably half of those will be in existing companies we invested in and the other half will either be companies we were introduced to or some of the newest incubator companies so in fact it's going to be a lot of follow-on investments is my calculation. Yep. And we have a pretty high bar for the incubator. Like the company has to have a product launch, has to have a complete team. I mean, not like a Series A team, but like a team that can actually move the ball forward, update the product, sell the product. And right now we have people coming to the incubator with, I'll call it 5000 a month to 300000 a month in revenue. And many with 50000 a month or 75000 or 25000 So... Because there's so many startups out there, we just realized the place where we can be the most effective in helping people is when they have some traction, then we can really help them grow their companies. Is this mostly tech? Is it always tech? We really don't like to think about any particular category. We think about the founder and we think about the early customers and what they think of the product. But if you try to categorize a company, most people didn't consider Uber or Airbnb tech companies. Or Dollar Shave Club. They considered them like service companies or product companies. Then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, no, they're marketplaces. Okay, now we have a name for it. It's on-demand marketplaces. And then everybody's like, oh, we have to find the next 20 on-demand marketplaces. Like, well, those next 20 are not going to be as good as the first four. Would you invest in like food and drink businesses, for example? Probably not, but I would never say no. So if somebody came to me and was super passionate about their drink and they had some customers and some theory of how it would get somewhere, that would be great, sure. Um, Spanx, like as an example, yeah, amazing story. Or Lululemon, like those companies did not seem like they were venture based or would ever get to a billion dollars. Well, they never got to raise money, so right. she's richer than most founders. Correct. So there's a lesson there as well. Like, Absolutely. Some founders get really good at raising money, better at raising money than running companies. That's and a problem. Better at raising money than remembering that they need to save some equity for the exit. Yeah, they have to have something by the end. And we, we've had companies that are coming into our incubator. And we look at their cap table, and we're like, the founders own 20% or 30%. This will never work. How do we fix this? You don't want to be sitting there with a you know, founder at the incubator series seed or series A only having 20%. And they're going to get diluted 20% two or three more times. Mm. They'll be down to single digits. Unless there's three of them. If there's three of them, yeah. I mean, that's fine. So let's take it into uh, the current market. So there's been murmurs, both sides of the Atlantic, really, in terms of the market turning. There might be a recession on the board, you know, coming again. That's despite making America great again. You know, there's nothing seems to be able to stop. Tremendous, huge. It's tremendous. Presumably that does happen. You may have heard of something called Brexit, okay? (laughs) It means more jobs for our people. It's a good thing, isn't it, people? They love me in Scotland. They love me. (laughs) They love you in your one. Exactly. They don't even love him there, to yeah, be honest. No. I've been there. They don't even like it. They don't care for him. Um, okay, so look, if that does happen as an expert angel investor, yeah. does that not just scream opportunity? Yeah, of course. I mean, the great companies are built um, in the down markets and the fortunes are collected in the up market. So what people have to realize is like Uber, Google, Facebook, these were all started in down markets. Uber in the 2008 recession period, after the dot-com bust, 
2004, 2005, Twitter, Facebook, all these things emerged. Google grew through that. They were launched in the late 90s, I guess. But they grew through the dot-com bust. Amazon grew th- and Netflix grew through the dot-com bust. So when the market corrects, here's what happens. On the downside, stock prices get depressed. People are afraid to invest. People who are affluent to either run funds and have LPs, maybe they don't do a capital call, maybe they slow down their investing to let everybody assess how bad it is. That's what happened during the financial crisis. That's what happened during the dot-com bust. But shortly thereafter, people realized, wait a second, there's no competition for employees because unemployment's at 15%. All this office space is cheap you can negotiate. And if I want to buy ads, they're super cheap. So instead of going onto Facebook and buying app installs for $8 versus six other people with my same idea trying to get people to install our puzzle app and we're all paying $8 each and we don't know what the lifetime value is for those people installing, all of a sudden it becomes 80 cents. And it's like, well, we don't really need to know because we know out of every 100 customers, somebody's going to spend more than 80 bucks. So the cost of acquiring customers goes down and there's less noise in the space. And right now that's one of the big things. You have copycat companies, you have noise. On the bright side, the cost of capital is cheap. You can raise money at a high valuation, not dilute that much, and there's plenty of capital around. So I think there's a 20% chance of a what I'll call a significant correction, you know, the 20 30 40% chance. I think it's a small chance of, like, greater than 50%. That doesn't happen all that often. And what's different now is if you just look at the top companies, they're printing money. They're profitable. Mm-hmm. They have huge global bases of users. And even in startups, I see a lot, a lot of the startups we invest in are getting close to profitability. They could decide to lay off five of their 15 employees or 10 of their 50 employees or 30 of their 100 employees. And, yeah, those other employees would have to pick up more of the slack, but they would be profitable. And in the dot-com era, you had people with 500 employees or 3,000 employees And there was no way for them to become profitable because there was no customer base. And they were only geographically operating in the United States. So they had one customer base. Google's in, and Facebook, these are all companies, and Uber, these are companies that are in over a thousand markets typically. Uber and Airbnb probably operate, I don't know, seven, eight hundred markets. Google, over a hundred. So Facebook, over a hundred. They're not going to get like, crushed, they're not going to go away. No. The stock prices could de- get depressed, sure, but do you think if there's a down market, people will stop using Facebook, Google, Instagram, Netflix? No. The opposite. They probably have more free time and they use them more. Agreed. So you look at those things as an opportunity, clearly. Now, and I also realized this when I, like I said earlier, I read your book. So I actually, by coincidence, last time I was in San Francisco a year yeah. ago, yeah. I wanted to get a flight down to LA, but my wife made me drive because she's never done yeah. the Pacific Coastal Highway which I have done a few times, and I said, no, I'd much rather get the flight, but okay, if you really want to. Eight-hour drive, 12-hour yeah, well, more like Yeah, more like 10. Anyway, she slept the entire way. Huh. And, to uh, my soothing voice? Well, yeah, basically. Yeah, but wow. to, to make you happy, like she was already asleep. It was Good. more that I was like, well, what the fuck? Like, I'll literally, just listen to it. And I listened to the whole audiobook. Great. And in one, one sitting... Fantastic. And it was awesome. And I've taken lots of um, things into my real world. The most notable being, I really don't have it here, but don't need it for this moment, uh, taking a notebook and yeah. writing notes when you have a meeting with someone yeah. just to show them the respect. And it really hit me. That yeah. little bit of politeness, that real yeah. insight. And I don't want to take it away from you. Like, well, Tell our listeners about some of your insights over your well, career that really make I... founders feel special that is a character basis for a quality angel investor. When... People get a large amount of money. It can warp their minds or perception of themselves and reality. The fact is the great founders are going to have their choices of investors 
if not now, in the near future. And you never know, as I said earlier, you should never underestimate anybody. So if you put these two things together, don't underestimate anybody. And if they wind up being successful, they're going to have their choice of funding. You want to have every experience with you be a positive one. And I think in my earlier days, I did not make every experience positive for people who met with me. I might be too candid, too brutal. Now, I have some devices I use with founders to make it super hyper-constructive while being super candid, which is something I got from the Ed Catmull episode in his book, Creativity. He always talked about being candid. And what he said in that book was, listen, if you tell people to be honest, you're saying stop lying because you're not being honest, so you're being dishonest. Therefore, I want you to be honest now. When you say, can you just be candid with me? You're not accusing them of being dishonest. You're saying, I want you to be even more honest. So it's a little bit easier. So I just tell founders when I meet with them, listen, I hear them out. I say, did I miss anything? Is there anything else that you need to tell me? I always try to put an hour on the schedule for them. If I'm going to take the in-person meeting, I try to be very clear about where our Goldilocks zone is, where we're currently looking for investments and how to do that and create many opportunities for people to interact with me, whether it's social media or our events like Scale or Founder University. So I'm constantly trying to be accessible to everybody. Somebody stops me on the street, says, you're Jason Calacanis. I say, tell me about your startup. And they go, how do you know I was a founder? I was like, well, you know who I am. Therefore, you're a founder or another investor. So if you're a founder, tell me about your company. If you're an investor, tell me about the last company you invested in. And then I say, you want to take a selfie? And then they're like, I was about to ask you that. I was like, oh, really? Because I really wanted to take a selfie with you. I know that they're going to ask or they have It would have be kind of hilarious if you just had like a whole like load of random selfies, like a whole cupboard of selfies with strangers. Yeah. And that was actually your fetish after that was, all? Yeah, absolutely. That's just the thing that Jason Calacanis is He into. just wants to take <laughs> I actually had a funny one. Somebody came up to me and was like, can we take a picture? He said, uh, can you take a picture? And I said, sure. And I said, here, give me the camera. And I went to take a picture of the two of us. He goes, no, no, I want you to take a picture of my girlfriend and I. Yeah, amazing. Because uh, we're sitting here, and I was like, oh, okay. And he looked at me, he's like, why would I want to take a picture of you? I don't know you. And I'm like, I thought you knew who I was. So who are you? I said, don't worry about it. Anyway, long story short, don't underestimate anybody. Give everybody a bunch of time. And just being on your device, like I had a major venture capital firm, top five in terms of brand recognition, and I sent the very high-profile founder who's very notable, very opinionated person, three or four founders, and they all reported back that he didn't meet with them. He had somebody else with their team meet with them. They thought it was kind of like a bait and switch. And then when they did meet with those people, two of the people reported that, you know, the other partner was on their phone and only set up 30 minutes and was kind of distracting. And I get back these reports from founders because I asked them how it went. And uh, they tell me the truth. And then they talk to each other. So in a meeting, one of the devices I'll use is... Blue pill, red pill, which would you like? I can give you the unvarnished truth or I can sugarcoat it. No founder worth their salt is going to ask for the blue pill and sugarcoating. And so once they give me permission, they want to take the red pill, I say, okay, here's what I love. These are the great things. I think you're amazing. Uh, You make good progress. Here are the things that downstream investors from me, the people who invest after me, are going to tell you need to be fixed. The design. The design is not world-class yet. It's good. It's like a six of 10 is what they would think. So I kind of blame it on them. And I'd say, but, you know, I've had, you know, inside or other startups be a six out of 10. Here's how I made them a nine. And everybody says, oh, lo- the launch logo is beautiful. Or this week in startups, logo is beautiful. Just go on Dribble, Go on Behance. Hire somebody for $5,000 and do a brand refresh. And, you know, boom, you're done. So that idea of talking to them about 
the things I like, being candid, getting permission is great. And then you have to, you want people leaving the meeting feeling good about it, not bad. And I just used to be way too critical. And I think when you're in a position of power uh, or a position of influence or notability, and this could be being a CEO, it could be being a celebrity journalist, it could be a studio head, it could be anybody, you know, a person hosting a podcast. You got to be cognizant of the fact that your words could impact somebody very deeply. Yeah. Especially and, psychologically uh, as a founder. You're of course. You're so fragile so often. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not an easy job. So I just try to be careful, especially with my internal team. I try to be very lighthearted and fun and keep everything light. And I tell everybody, listen, here's the result I'm looking for. Get it done, and there's no issue. And if things are not done and we don't get the result I want, I'm going to be micromanaging. I'm going to roll up my sleeves. I'm going to be up in your business. And you will not be here. Yep. Like, I'll get somebody else to do it. All I care about is that we are a Michelin-starred restaurant. We are like the Four Seasons. That's what I want the experiences we create in the world to be like. So if our audio sucks on the podcast, that's not acceptable. And I fired one or two directors because they couldn't dial it in. But when I was younger, I just felt it was my – I had a very weird thing in my 20s because of how I grew up in Brooklyn where I thought being a good business owner or manager was explaining to people how stupid they were and how terrible they were at their jobs. And it sounds like you grew up in New York. I grew up in New York. And yeah. so literally when I was running the magazine and people who work for me can tell you the story, it's like – I'd be like, oh, why don't you go ahead and read us your uh, story? And they're like, I emailed it to you. It's in your inbox. I'm like, no, no. Open it up. Read it out loud. This is an editorial meeting with 25 people. And then they would get to the mistake and be like, and that's why venture capitalists are like, read that sentence one more time. And said, oh, that's why venture capitalists. I fixed that typo. Like, no, no, I want you to read what's on the page to me. Yeah. And then, oh, that's why the, the venture capitalist. Oh, the, the venture capitalist? Are you trying to destroy our magazine? Everybody in this room is busting their ass to make the greatest magazine in the world. And you... Don't even have the fucking courtesy to read your work and take out a boneheaded error like Thutha. Get out of this medium and don't ever come into this room again or to this company until you learn how to read your work out loud and take out stupid bonehead errors like this. Like I would speak to that people, but I thought that was what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to chew people out when they make stupid mistakes. And that's not what you're supposed to do. You've had some hiccups along the way. Sure. We've just discussed them. You've got a psychology degree. Yep. You've seen the founders. Yeah. Talk to us about how absolutely shit it is and how it feels in those moments. Like, yeah. go back to them. Because now you have the success you deserve after the scars and well, the battle scars. more than I deserve, the, but yeah. Whatever. Uh, the point lucky. being, you've done it. You've done Here's it. Here's what right? I'll tell you. When you're young and it's your first or second startup, you are the startup. And there's no separation of you, the individual, and the self from the entity. So I was the Silicon Alley reporter. When the Silicon Alley reporter died, it was very personal and emotional. When I did weblogs, the second company, I was like, it's a collection of blogs. I built it. I have a partner. I've got an investor, Mark Cuban. We've got 500 bloggers. There's 95 blogs. I didn't feel like it was me. So I felt fine letting it go. With Mahalo, it started to feel like me again, and I felt very connected to it, but I also still had a little bit of that battle scar. So when we lost all of our traffic because Matt Cutts and the Google team decided to destroy all these competitors and content companies in a very anti-competitive way, without any warning, to mm. take their own partners and pull the rug out from under them and then be 
just complete obnoxious a-holes and not give us any relief or even communicate with us. It was infuriating for me, but I realized I'm an idiot for trusting Matt Cutts and Google and thinking that they would have ever done the right thing for us. That was my mistake. They tricked me and it was, it was a good lesson. But at that point, I was so distanced from it that I was like, I'm a creator, I make things. And some things I make will work, some things won't. And if I'm really taking chances, then stuff shouldn't work out. So part of me creating things that do work in the world is me having things that don't work in the world. So when you have failure, it's just a precursor to success. And that's the way you should look at it. If this podcast doesn't work out, the next one will. If you had a bad speaker at a conference or people didn't show up for your first conference and you do another conference and it's packed, you learn something. And so I'm always trying to encourage my founders to separate themselves and be objective. My dad lost his bar in 1987 when the stock market crashed. I lost my first business when the market crashed in 2001. And I was faced with the same exact thing he was. When the stock market crashed in 1987, the great Black Monday crash, all the people who owed him money at the bar who had tabs got laid off from Wall Street and they couldn't pay. And then he got in arrears of his taxes and bills and it imploded. Then what happens? I'm the king of New York. I got a $12 million a year business, 100 employees. I'm on Charlie Rose. I'm in the New Yorker. I'm like, oh, I've, I've done it. I made it to Manhattan, right? Like, I'll show you, Dad. <laughs> it's like, I really made it far. You know, like, I'm on Charlie fucking Rose. I'm on, like, the New Yorker wrote a story about me. This is, like, heady stuff. I'm the cover of the New York Times. And then what happens? The stock market crashes. And all the advertisers go out of business, and they can't pay their bills. And I'm like, my dad had a bunch of bankers who couldn't pay their bar tabs, and I had people who couldn't pay their ad bills, all because the stock market crashed. So that was, like, that cave moment for me, which was like, oh, I'm really battling myself, right? Like... This is an archetypal type battle. You're When you're a founder, you're up against your own limitations more than you are any particular enemy. And understanding where you're at in life and what you're capable of, that's part of the maturation process, right? Like I'm yeah. not out there trying to build like a $5 billion fund. I'm not trying to be Masayoshi-san. I'm not trying to be Sequoia. I'm, you know, I'm not – I know that if I try to do those things – you know, it could be an Icarus-like moment, you know, and I should just stay in my lane and do what I'm great at and that I like. It reminds me a bit of, um, well, part of what you were just saying reminds me a bit of the Mike Tyson quote. Um, yeah, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Not that one. Even oh. better. And it's, it's a so better one than poetic. That. Oh, really? You literally won't believe it came from him. Uh, but is that, No, I believe um, it. He's a poet. Yeah, it's amazing. So um, if you aren't humble in your lifetime, then humbleness will find a way of finding itself upon you. It's like a little poetry thing. And obviously he's got no money and all these bills. And it's like, that was my thing. I was an arrogant jerk and I wasn't humble at any point. And now I have yeah. no choice. The big lesson I think a lot of founders and people have early success especially is that the things that made them successful in that first phase of their career will actually work against them in the second phase. So there's a book, What Got You Here Will Not Get You There. And it's that kind of realization like – me being an arrogant prick of a editor of a magazine and chewing people out and just swinging my elbows all around the basketball court and is not going to make me the elder statesman greatest investor of all time. The greatest investor of all time is more like an Obi-Wan or a Yoda, can be wise. You know, If they take their lightsaber out, they know how to use it, but I don't need to take my lightsaber out. I don't have to throw my weight around anymore. Other VCs try to push me around or take and this is kind of like in the weeds, but early stage investors typically get their asses handed to them when the VCs invest in a company and they try to take away their rights. I've sort of corrected that 
for myself and for others in the industry by saying all early stage investors should get pro rata, all early stage investors should get information rights, et cetera. And you know, I've held my own, but I've had two or three venture firms who want to mix it up with me and try to take away my rights. And I write about it in the book a couple of times, and I've had to deal with it recently. And I just put my foot down, but I don't have to raise my voice. Mm. It's very simple now. I just tell another VC firm. I think if the situations were reversed, you would want me to respect your rights. Am I right? And they're like, well, I'm not disrespecting your rights. I mean, I, I think this is normal for the industry. I'm like, but if they were your rights and I was doing the Series B and you were doing, had done these rights in the Series A, would you be happy if we, as colleagues, if I then insisted you lose Listen your to the psychology degree coming right out. And they would be like, well, you know, and then one person would be like, listen, Jason, I had to eat shit when I came into the industry or whatever. And I said, let me stop you right there. I'm sorry that you had to eat shit, but Jason Calacanis does not eat shit. Yeah. And that's one of the chapters in the book is I've, Jason Calacanis does I've not eat it. shit. And I have heard the, yeah. you read it. So watching yeah. you say it. Well, I think me. you also, where I come from, and it's it's not reality, but I come from an area where you show one ounce of weakness, it is going to be exploited. What is it like being rich? You just discussed it, like being really rich. Do you find genuinely, though, behind all of it, is there part of your psyche that is concerned that people want something from you that isn't just like at face value? You know, I'm married and happy and, you know, it's not like I'm dating, so I have to worry about the person dating me being like, oh, you've got money. I don't think about it. I don't have so much money that it's absurd. I'm not a billionaire, um, but I certainly got a lot of money and I know I recognize that it's a trippy thing for people. I try to just not think about it. I try to focus on my work. Because if you think about it, I think too much, it gets in your head, and then you start thinking, I should retire. And that's the big danger, is sometimes I'm like, oh, I am not going to be able to spend this money, and so then I should retire. But is that and a big danger? Scary. Why? So let's talk about that then. So work-life balance, what does that mean to Jason Calacanis? Is there such a thing? You know, I love my work, and I wake up every day. I get to spend a little time with my daughters, then they go to school or do an activity, and then I work, and I can work and set my own schedule. So I have basically designed my life around doing the things I enjoy, which is talking. If I was a superhero, my superpower would be like talking. Mine too. I've yeah, exactly. been told. Yeah. yeah. So I just like, okay, CNBC, sure. Okay, write a book, sure. Podcast, great. Be on your podcast, great. So I basically say, here's what I want my life to be, and I try to... Like, I don't like to talk to lawyers. Like, no offense to lawyers, but I, I don't want to spend my time going over contracts. So I just designated a person in my organization, one of our managing directors. You handle everything. Here's the standard set of request documents we have. Anything gets out of the norm, let me know. And then sure enough, like, once in a while I get dragged into something yeah. and I regret it. Yeah. So I think that's important. I do think that if you do wind up hitting, like, some crazy home runs, it's reasonable to think – well, that's an incredible amount of privilege. What's my responsibility or what do I want the next future to be? And I think I was put on this earth to inspire and support other founders to do great things. And I'm good at it. And I like being proficient at something. Like when I started playing poker, I wasn't. talk about your own skill, uh, about owning a superpower and owning a skill. Like yeah. owning on the one thing. And that's obviously yours. I think my ability to sit with a founder to suspend disbelief, to see the one in a hundred chance clearly of this working is my superpower. And I think most people's minds are correctly designed by evolution 
to say, don't take risk. Mm. Risk is bad. Don't take a risk that's one in a hundred because if it's one in a hundred that you swim across this channel and don't get eaten by a shark, that's not worth taking. And if it's one in a hundred, if it's 99 in a hundred that you get eaten, you shouldn't take that chance. If it's one in a hundred, you shouldn't take that chance. If it's one in a thousand, you shouldn't take that chance. And I sit here every day and I'm like, yeah, 99 times out of a hundred, you get eaten by the great white shark and one time you make it across the bay. Okay, let's do it. But you have to recondition your mind to realize, oh, if this fails, if 99 of them fail and the one that succeeds succeeds to the extent Robinhood, Uber, Thumbtack, or others have succeeded, well, that could be a 5,000x or a 500x. It's well worth it. And I only know this because of when you play poker, you start to learn how many outs you have and odds and the expected value and, and a bunch of other like mathematic gambling risk things. If I took out a deck of cards and I told you, give me $1,000 and you can pull one card out of the deck. If it's the Ace of Spades, I will give you $100,000. But if it's the other 51 cards, you get nothing. I keep the 1000 Almost everybody would say no. I would say, or anybody who's a reasonable gambler would say, okay, I got a 2% chance. You're offering me 100 to 1 odds when you should be offering me 50 to 1 odds. That's a big spread. How many times can we do it? Can I do it 100 times? Can I do it 300 times? Can I do it 1,000 times with you? Because if I do it 104 times, statistically, I should win twice, and I should win 200,000. And if I only pull it once, yeah, that's going to be tough for me to do, but it's still worth actually. Yeah, you still it. do it? I'd still do it, sure. I'll do it right now if you want to. I'm all right, actually, but I'm glad you asked. You don't want to risk the 100,000? Yeah, I, I we'll do it the other you way around. A- we could do it the other way around. I'm happy to do it the other way around, too. I feel like we should maybe do it the other way around. I would never do it the other way around. That's, <laughs> that would be insane oh, because you, the cost is so great, right? Uh, but anyway, I almost in people's got, minds, I almost got a seed investment from you. Exactly. Yeah. No, but in people's minds, even in the face of the logic of the risk, yeah. we're not good at accessing risk. Mathematics and gambling and odds making, yeah. it's a very unique thing. That's why the bookie and the house always wins. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. we're coming towards the end because you're a busy guy and, you know, frankly, sure. you've been generous with your time. Um, Try to be. Always. But there is this element of uh, work-life go. balance we just touched on. Now, you're very fortunate to have all that. However, yeah, feels from afar there's been a bit of a backlash lately on the killing it expectation in the value. Yeah, whatever. Articles about David it. Hanmeyer Hansen was on the podcast, DHH. He's a super smart, successful cat. I respect him a lot. Yep. On the podcast, I took the position that, like, if your competitors are going really hard, isn't it? How do you just take it easy? Like, I I come from Gen X where we just said, just put all your effort into everything you do yep. and out hustle everybody. And there is a toxicity that can happen when people are just like, you have to be in the office every day of your life and not sleep. That's never been my position, but my position is the hardest working teams tend to win. I still would believe that. I did recently tell folks on a Q&A, a call-in, which David retweeted, I think with millennials, and maybe he saw this before I did eight years ago when he was on the podcast, I see it clearly now. Millennials think differently. And I think boomers, Gen X, millennials, there's this evolution that's occurred. Boomers, they were just like, I'm lucky to have a job. Gen X was like, I'm going to show you. I'm going to make my own thing. I'm going to crush you in the market. I'm going to 
out hustle you big company and try and then millennials are like i'm going to rack up more incredible experiences by the time i'm 30 than you will have by the time you're dead so by the time you're 30 i will have been to machu picchu and i will have been to moscow and i will have dove the great barrier reef and you know skydived and done everything and they're not wrong experiences and living your life and having a good time is well worth it and you can't argue as a business leader with what they want for their life so the idea that you're going to take a millennial who values experiences over career values experiences over money you're not going to motivate them to magically change their mind about this they're just not going to and so i think adapting means saying to highly talented millennials or even Gen Xers, because I think the millennials have infected a lot of Gen Xers who are now like, I'm getting off this crazy treadmill. I'm going to have balance in my life. I'm going to be like a millennial. And you just have to go on Instagram and watch 50-year-old people at Burning Man and Coachella and you know five other music festivals in one summer. And you realize, oh, yeah, this is, this is spreading. Those folks, you just have to meet them where they are, which is, would you like to be a consultant? How do you like to work? Yep. You want to work hourly? Great. You want to work on a contract basis for six months? You want to work six weeks on and then take two weeks off? Like, you're just going to have to meet them where they are, or you're going to have to tell people when they come in, this job is not for everybody. Yeah. And I tell everybody when they come in exactly how many hours a week they're going to work for me. Most people who are in management in our company work 40 to 55 hours a week. And what's expected is if I send an email or a text, you get back to me quickly and everybody else, and that you get your job done. That's it. We're a results-based organization. If you need to take some time off or you have something you have to do, just ask. It's fine. But the world has changed. If you face a competitor who doesn't care about life-work balance, you will get your ass handed to you. You need only look at Tesla dominating all the existing car companies. The idea that Tesla could just take it easy and they would be fine is not true. They would be Fisker if they didn't burn the midnight oil. And the reason why China has these incredible huge unicorns out of nowhere is because they work 996. So it is illogical to say that people who work twice as hard are not going to go as far. That's illogical. So that's David's point is they were successful without having to kill themselves. Mm. They happen to be super smart. They probably would have built a billion dollar or a $10 billion company if they worked twice as hard. Instead, they built a company worth a hundred million or 200 million or whatever it's worth. I don't know what base camp is worth. Maybe yeah. it's worth 500 million. But I think if they did work twice as hard or if they burned the midnight oil and they had that culture, it would be a multi-billion dollar company and they'd be public. But they don't want that, which is okay. So you can be successful. You're not going to be as successful. Would you invest in a founder and a company that was just honest about that? Like, look, I'm looking to build a 100 to 500 million company because I want to have... Uh, if the, the valuation was one to five million, I will invest in a company if I can, with the founder, figure out how they will return 100 times our money. So with com.com, if we put in 378 thousand and i can come up with a thesis or alex and mike can come up with a thesis where that three hundred seventy-eight thousand turns to 37 million it doesn't mean it has to happen sure but there has to at least be a thesis that it could get there and in that case it has and the thesis is pretty easy instead of having a thousand people use the product a month have a million people use the product a month and you're there right so pretty simple you know you just have to go 10x and then 10x and then 10x it's just as easy as that. You heard it from the horse's mouth. It's just uh, the triple 10x guys. So yeah. stop being so fucking lazy and just get on with that, right? Yeah, or four 10xs like Uber. Or that. Or that. Five. Sure. Or just, just keep, keep going. going. Just keep going. What's Five the best style. piece of advice you've ever been given? 
I think Michael Jordan said at some point you miss 100% of shots you don't take. Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky? Yeah. Yeah. Skate to where the puck is going. Is I guess that's the other one he says. He forgot it because he's Canadian, I guess. So. Yeah, but anyway, you miss 100% of shots you don't take is probably the most important piece of advice because I have started in so many little projects here or there that didn't work out. Nobody remembers them. And people only remember your winners. And you only have to – the other one is Mark Cubans. You only have to be right once. It is so true. And once you're right once, the chances of you being right again go up exponentially because you have the chip stack to do it. So just keep trying. If three out of four startups fail, just start four startups. Yeah, That's what I keep telling people. Like, don't give up. Shut your company down. Start another one. Shut it down. Start another one. We've invested in maybe a half dozen founders twice, and we've been investing for eight years. So I think we'll be investing. Once it failed? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Or like singles and doubles. Reportive was like a double for us. I think we tripled our money, and then Raul started Superhuman. I think that'll be a massive win. And so we've done it many times where somebody returned zero to five times our money, and we're now on the journey with them again, hoping it will be five to 50 times or 500. Okay, Jason, thank you very much My for your pleasure. time today. It's been awesome. Great honest answers. The last question, if I may. Oh, is, yes. What would you ask your 18-year-old self? What kind of advice would you give that person? Oh, the, to the camera, tell everyone. What would you say to 18-year-old Jason? Move to Silicon Valley, the Bay Area, immediately. Today. Get the last flight out of town. If I had done that, I mean, I don't live with any regret, obviously. It would be stupid. But my God, I mean... If I had gotten here earlier with all this shit going down and how, like, I mean, literally an idiot can show up in this town and be a billionaire within a decade. Like, it happens often that some dipshit just gets into the right company at the right time. I would have been working at Yahoo or Google or something. I would have, where I would have started a company and been caught up in the venture world here earlier. I got started kind of late in life. So if there's a young person listening who wants to be in this industry, just find a couch Find the cheapest apartment you can and move out here and have a skill that people need. Sales, product management, design, developer, whatever. Just get your ass out here and get to work. Awesome. Thank you very much, Jason. Peace out. Next week on Secret Leaders. I was outside in a park and I saw literally everyone playing Candy Crush. And suddenly someone approached me because they saw that I was also I had candy in my hand. They approached me asking them if I could send them some lives, a complete stranger. <laughs> and that was really one of these, oh my God, this was fantastic. That was Ricardo Zaccone, the founder of King.com, the makers of those addictive mobile games you just can't stop playing, like the infamous Candy Crush, which is one of the most successful mobile games of all time, as you probably know yourself, as you sit there multitasking, playing it whilst listening to me talk. Anyway, we'll see you next week. So tune in or you'll miss out. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by your host, that's me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer, Rich Martell, edited by Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and if you've heard this, it'll probably have something to do with Jennifer Osman in Canada. You'll also notice throughout this series, we've got some beautiful illustrations made for every episode, and that's all thanks to Christina Naru of smartupvisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming Secret Leaders live events on secretleaders.com. If you haven't yet, hit subscribe on whatever media player you use. Just follow us at Secret Leaders on Instagram or at Secret Leaders 1 on Twitter. And tell just one friend about how freaking awesome this episode is. If you want to go the extra mile, I'm at Dan Murray Serta on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'd love to see you take some screenshots of the episode you're listening to and share it across your social media. It'll bring a tear to our eye and joy to our hearts. See you next week. Tune in or you'll miss out.